Last week, I got an email from Jimmy Thomas. He's a counselor at a Chicago community organization called the Northwest Side Housing Center. Jimmy helps people who are struggling to make rent. He wanted to give me a sense of why he's so worried about a coming housing crisis that, so far at least, has been largely invisible. And so attached to his email was a spreadsheet of all the people he's been talking to about the rent. Jimmy left off the names, but he kept the details. The spreadsheet has 48 rows, 48 families worried about their housing. And then there are the columns, a column for citizenship status, a column labeled hardship, mostly lost jobs, a column for how much each person's rent is per month and how much they owe. There was also a column for landlord reaction with little cells filled with things like landlord is understanding or landlord is not understanding or landlord says she needs to pay or leave. I picked a few numbers from the 48 and asked Jimmy if he'd put me in touch. He reached out, and the first person who got back to him was number 24. Hi, how are you? Hey, how you doing? This is number 24 on that Excel sheet. Well, my name's Emily Sanchez, and I'm 23 years old, and I'm, I'm a single mom of two little kids, uh, 18-month-old and a three-month-old. Emily has bright eyes, glasses, and a ponytail. She's got a big tattoo of Jesus on the cross on her leg from high school. She's lived in Chicago since she was three years old and has no memory of Mexico, where she was born. She's in this country illegally. While we spoke, her hands kept fidgeting in her lap like she was washing them. I've been living here for three years already. She lives on the second floor of a two-flat on a pretty street on Chicago's northwest side. When she moved into this apartment three years ago, she bought patio furniture to have summer barbecues. And that's where we were sitting. Emily's younger brother, an 18-year-old with autism and diabetes, was watching after the kids. They were asleep. Well, I don't want to wake them up. Okay, or I don't know, wherever you want to. There's the backyard. Before the pandemic, and before she called Jimmy, Emily wanted to go to culinary school. She says she got a full ride to a school in New York, but decided to stay in Chicago to be closer to her mom. And instead, she got an associate's degree in pastry. Emily isn't the only cook in her family. Her mom makes fajitas and tacos. And before the pandemic, they'd host cookouts to raise money. We were those type of people, the family, that we always help out everyone. I know my mom has always, we've done fundraisers. When that money that was raised, she takes them to the people because they need them. For a while, things were going great. Emily married her high school sweetheart. They had kids. They rented an apartment big enough to fit her mom and her brother, at least a car. She worked as an assistant teacher at a daycare. It was at the daycare, eight months pregnant, that she first started hearing about the virus. Honestly, when I heard it at the job, we were all making fun of it. But once we saw it starting spreading and the buses and stuff like that, we were like, you know, scared. We were like, what was going to happen with all of us? On March 28th, the daycare said that their employees couldn't come back unless they were tested. A week later, Emily was on unpaid maternity leave. And on, on April 5th, I gave birth to a little boy. I had him while the pandemic was horrible. It was the baddest treatment in the hospital. Yeah, they didn't even let my mom come in or anything. It was just me. After having him, you know, I had to pass everything alone because his dad just walked away out of the picture all of a sudden. And then I've been trying to, lot, you know, look for him and stuff. Like, he said he doesn't have a job and he can't help right now. Over the course of just nine days, in the middle of the pandemic, Emily had a child, lost her job, 
and her husband walked out. But because she's undocumented, she got no unemployment benefits and no stimulus check. It's been almost four months since Emily's son was born. And in that time, she's made sacrifice after sacrifice just to keep her family fed. She took out a payday loan from Opportune. They let me borrow $100, and I had to pay back 500 But I got my credit messed up now. She stopped buying anything but the cheapest foods for her family. My brother and my one-year-old get tired of eating spaghetti every day because they ate it for like a whole month. And one of them, you know, told me, oh, we want meat. We want chicken or something. Even her dog, Blue, is a vegetarian now. She stopped paying for the laundromat. I don't have money for the laundry. I don't have money for soap and all that. So with the same dish soap that I get donated, I wash and back and forth. And she started selling stuff, anything she could find. I found my mom had, like, Tupperware, brand new, that she used to sell in her company. So I started selling that, you know, the cheapest, like the GoPro, stuff like that that they had that was new gifts that I had from Christmas. We had to sell everything. Um, have, you, have you had to sell anything that you really cared about? Yes. My mom's um, wedding rings, I had to go pawn them to pay um, my brother's uh, diabetes insulation and the strips and the little needles. Yeah, I had to go pawn it. Right now, the gold went down, like they said. So they gave me only, it was $75, and it was worth 500 They said if I would have come in another crisis. But it was hard because, you know, he was, he needed the insulation. And, the, and, you know, the risking to going to the hospital and him going himself, it was horrible. And then, on top of it all, this month, Emily's mom got stomach pain so bad she had to go to the hospital, which is where she was that afternoon when we sat down in her backyard. I've heard some crazy stories as a reporter, but I don't think I've ever had a conversation quite like this one. So many American problems, the cruelty to immigrants, the immoral healthcare system, the predatory lenders, the inequality, the way we treat the poor, the way we treat women, the failed response to the virus, Everything seemed to have fallen on the shoulders of this 23-year-old sitting across from me. As much an American as me, but with nothing to show for it. Emily does have one thing going for her right now. A roof over her head. This spring, Illinois joined other states in placing a moratorium on evictions. It is scheduled to last through August, and it is keeping Emily in her home. She says she is four months behind on rent and owes her landlord more than $4,000. Like they said, as, long, as soon as eviction starts, they're going to turn in the order. But just because her landlord can't officially evict Emily yet doesn't mean he can't make her life difficult. The landlord's dad and the brother do live downstairs, and they have called the cops about five times already. They harass me. They At 2 in the morning, they're knocking. The kids wake up. And I have to come downstairs and knock and say, you know, what's going on? They're like, well, you're not paying the rent. We can do whatever we want. He told me that he was going to evict me and take out everything. I did tell him to go ahead and do it because one of the resources I found told me they can't do that. We weren't able to confirm those allegations with the landlord or his family. But despite all this, when I asked Emily what she was going to do when she came into some money, this is what she said. Pay the landlord. On the one hand, this seems like the worst possible scenario that could happen to anyone. On the other, 
Emily was just a number on a spreadsheet, just a person I picked at random from one community group in one neighborhood of one city. In Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, which won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago, he notes that eviction isn't just a symptom of poverty, it's a cause. And with Emily, I can see this. She's suffered a lot, but what makes her story so painful to me is the thought of how much she still has to lose. I'm Henry Grabar, and this is the fifth episode in our series on the future of the city after COVID-19. Today on the show, evictions. How bad are things right now? And what happens when the eviction machine starts rolling again? This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Here's the thing about what's happening right now with evictions. It's hard to figure out. You can talk to people like Emily. You can read newspaper stories about the coming wave. But it's hard to get a sense of the bigger picture. There's really no data. So I called Cass Management. You see the name Cass on the outside of so many apartment buildings throughout the city, you would think they own the whole thing. Cass manages more than 10,000 apartments in Chicagoland across the income scale. They're not the mom-and-pop landlord, so different from Emily's situation. But they do manage properties for landlords, and they only get paid when the rent comes in. We're, we're a fee business. We're paid based on gross collected income. So there's no rent being collected. We're also, as a management company, not getting paid, and thus affecting different parts of our business as well. This is Mark Durakovich. He's a principal and VP at Cast Management. Mark says that Cass's typical on-time collection rate has dropped by 5 to 7%, which adds up to about 1,500 households who aren't paying. Some tenants are a month behind or paying reduced rent. Others are in eviction territory. But with overlapping moratoriums at the city, state, and federal level, they can't be evicted. The only thing that the eviction moratorium has really caused a negative impact on is all of the individuals that were in the eviction procedure prior now have basically been put in a position where you just added several months to what already is, unfortunately, in Chicago, a process that can take you know six to 10 months prior to COVID-19. If you have a renter that is sitting in a unit for six to 10 months, and now you add another six months to that process, it becomes a... Uh, a very challenging uh, situation. Right. And we, when you say individuals, though, you mean the managers. Uh, presumably for the tenants, it's a great situation. Well, I mean, look, it's not a great situation. I'm sure they're experiencing uh, challenging times and such. But uh, look, the property is now experiencing a gap in income for a prolonged period of time. Those types of evictions that take six months before or 10 months before, if those are now taking 12, 14, 16 months, 
those become situations that I think will also lend themselves to alternative strategies that are bad for for everybody. You you mean that like if if a landlord feels like they can't file and get an eviction through the court system, they'll just say, all right, well, we are not going to fix your window or something like that, you know, and, and it becomes this sort of escalating extrajudicial uh, battle over over the space. Well, it goes back to, look, those are the types of things we as a professional management company will refuse to do, even if a, a property owner were to advise us that that's what they would wish to do, because uh, it's illegal, you know, number one. And, you know, morally, we're obligated to provide those services. Mark says Cass doesn't do that kind of thing, but he suspects that other landlords will. What Mark is doing is negotiating. Let's talk about a deferment plan. Let's talk about um, if that's not available, let's talk about vacating and ultimately more or less forgiving the balance and allowing people to vacate without experiencing an eviction on their record, without being afraid of waking up one day and finding a collection on their credit report uh, with regards to unpaid rent. So you've come up with deferment plans. Um, and then in the case where people are, are, are truly behind on their rent, you're trying to say to them, "Hey, let's let's come up with uh, let's come up with a, a, an agreement where you can you can find someplace you can afford, and we won't have to initiate an official eviction proceeding." Exactly, exactly. But if I were a tenant, I would be skeptical of that offer because you can't evict them anyway. So, what incentive do they have to 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 accept your proposal that they um, take a hike and and find a new place? Well, we, we all know that there is an end to the eviction moratorium. So waiting out that entire period is going to allow someone to obviously, yes, take that situation and wait for three months, four months. But once that moratorium is lifted, the uh, eviction procedures will, uh, will begin. And at that point, those types of offers may not be as readily available. You know, how many times are you going to be able to walk away from several thousands of dollars that you will owe? Mark sees himself and property owners at large as instrumental to a thriving city. He thinks that between the inducements, vacancies, and unpaid rent, his rent rolls are going to drop 15 to 20 percent this year. Think about what impact that has. How does the building pay for cleaning staff, for repair staff, for the utilities? Even us as a management company, if we don't collect rent, we, we don't get paid. If we don't get paid, we can't pay the property manager, the receptionist, the accounting people, the operations management people, and, and so forth. And you know, what happens then, right? Not only are, are people losing jobs, the building, the neighbors, the community are all being impacted because now you have a property that probably isn't getting serviced and will probably lose professional management and will be left in the hands of a property owner who is not fit and able to manage those situations. At the end of the day, it becomes, at least in my opinion, a very, very, very scary situation. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Mark, although I, I suspect that the public sympathy will be more, given the severity of the economic crisis, will be more on the side of 
the renter who can't make ends meet and 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 is worried about you know potentially being homeless or something like that more than the property manager who is struggling to make ends meet. I'll ask you this question though, if you don't mind mind me doing that. When someone looks at it from the perspective of housing is a what would you term it? You know, uh, it, you know, it, it's obviously a necessity, but is it a human right? You know, do do you do you walk into a restaurant and order food and walk out without paying? Do you walk into a pharmacy or a grocery store and pick up things off the shelves and walk out without paying? I think the answer to all those things are, is no. And these are these are individuals that own these buildings that a lot of them are reliant on that income to pay their bills. So this is the problem. On one side, we have Mark and an industry and urban economy built around people paying their rent. And on the other, we have people like Emily, millions of people struggling because of the pandemic and unable to pay. How big is this crisis? I wanted the bird's eye view, so I called Princeton University's Eviction Lab, the first nationwide database on evictions. The sociologist Peter Hepburn picked up. Hello. Hey, hey, Peter, this is Henry. Hey, guys. Peter, maybe we can start with this question that's been bugging me, which is that according to the data that you guys are collecting, even in cities that have no longer have eviction moratoriums, we haven't really seen eviction rates go through the roof, right? Right. So what's going on? Well, um, I think it's, it's you can chalk it up to a number of factors. Peter gave me three reasons why the eviction crisis hasn't landed yet. First of all, there is still this federal eviction moratorium that's in place. It's hard to say how many renters that really covers. The best estimates are that it's between 28% and 45% of all renters. So if you figure that's, say, a third of all renters right off the top that can't be filed against, then that's going to be a big help even in places that don't have any state or local level moratoriums. Unless that prohibition is extended, landlords of covered properties can begin filing evictions on August 24th. Here's the second thing. The expansion of unemployment insurance is a major income supplement to a lot of, a lot of families. And a lot of those families are probably disproportionately renters. And so if you've got an extra $600 a week coming in, and especially in those cases when this actually represents greater than income replacement for, for low-income households, that's probably helping to keep a lot of bills paid. Except for people like Emily, who aren't eligible for unemployment. And for those who are, the $600 federal payment runs out today. And here's Peter's third reason. The third factor is that even when a moratorium has been lifted, the courts in many parts of the country, and especially parts of the country that are, are dealing with a real surge in coronavirus cases, are having difficulty operating or trying to figure out how to operate under these new circumstances, which means that the normal case processing time on an eviction has kind of gone out the window. So what used to take three weeks is now taking months. And that slowdown is a disincentive to landlords or property managers to file a new eviction. This, by the way, is already happening. Housing courts are open in cities like Milwaukee and Cincinnati, and evictions aren't running ahead of what's typical. But as we learned from Mark, tenants sometimes leave without a formal eviction, 
And no one, not even Eviction Lab, knows how many people are getting pushed out under the radar. But there is something uniquely bad about a formal eviction filing. Whether or not you lose your case, you end up on a list that big property managers like Mark, and even some small landlords, may consult when you're applying for your next apartment. It tends to lead to downward neighborhood moves where people are forced to accept lower quality housing in worse neighborhoods if they can find housing at all. It leads to worse health outcomes, increased reports of depression and stress, increased suicidal ideation. Uh, It increases your risk of of job loss, material hardship, and financial trouble um, going forward after the eviction process. How concerned are you about a major wave of evictions in the aftermath of this leading to homelessness? How frequent is that, that an eviction leads to homelessness? That's another thing that's, that's, that is hard to measure. But I think we should be extremely worried about that. But we've also got to be concerned about families that are being evicted and that end up in doubled up housing. So they, they get evicted and you and your kids go and live with your aunt. And so suddenly you're living in more crowded, densely packed living quarters that, again, don't allow for any sort of social distancing. Those are conditions under which this coronavirus appears to spread very aggressively. Clearly, it also affects homeless populations disproportionately. In either circumstance, you're, you're, you're kind of keying up a public health crisis by exacerbating this housing crisis. Which made me think of Emily. I know I was supposed to ask her what would happen next if she lost her apartment, if her landlord changed the locks, what she would do with the kids, with her stuff, with her dog. But it felt like it was something I couldn't mention. If she didn't talk about it, I didn't want to make her think about it. After talking in Emily's yard for a while, we went upstairs to see her 18-month-old daughter, Mariana. She's named for Emily's grandmother. Say hi. Can you say hi? Hi. Do you want to go play with Blue? Yeah? Do you have a cat or a dog? How does Blue go? And then it was time for dinner. Mariana's choice. Tacos with zucchini, which a neighbor brought over from the community garden. For once, something besides spaghetti. And that's the show. Thanks to Emily Sanchez, Mark Durakovich at CAS, Peter Hepburn at Eviction Lab, and Jimmy Thomas from the Northwest Side Housing Center. If you want to help people like Emily, you can donate to their organization at nwshc.org. What Next TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. Derek John and Allison Benedict offer editorial direction. Thank you, Allison and Derek. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Henry Grabar. Thanks for listening. Mary will be back in your feed on Monday.
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.